Where do you start when you've never created a video ad before or scaled your existing video production? You start with QuickFrame by Mountain. Their platform takes the efficiency and diversity of massive creator marketplaces and redefines it through a highly curated network of video creators with the expertise you need to bring your ad campaigns to life. From onboarding and production to final delivery, QuickFrame's dedicated customer success team will be there every step of the way, keeping your project on track and on budget. What CMO doesn't love to hear that? Visit QuickFrame.com and get started today. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Kevin Gensel. Kevin is the Global Chief Commercial and Growth Officer at Newsweek. Uh, we've sort of been in each other's spheres, I think, for a long period of time, uh, Kevin, and through a, a couple different gigs. And uh, I'd love to start in an area that you just mentioned before we uh, went on the air, and that's about the news and what attracted you to Newsweek. So let's start there and, and maybe spend a little bit of time on that subject because it's a really interesting one. Yeah, Matt, first of all, thanks for having me. It's a real honor to join you. Uh, to your point, I, I just have known so much about you. I've followed your work over many years, so it's uh, fantastic that you and I are getting together. And it's a great leadoff question. I think it's really interesting that as we sit here together at the end of 2022, that trust in media is at an all-time low. And when you look at that globally, America's right at the top of the list of consumers' mistrust in media. And when you start to think through why is that, why is there such alarming levels of mistrust in media, I think there's a couple of common denominators that have driven this. Number one, the news feed. Quite frankly, your Facebook news feed, which has been propelling all sorts of unedited and unfact-checked content, um, has certainly been a key factor in driving mistrust. I think a second point has also been uh, that term fake news that was weaponized, utilized, misused, uh, politicized, and certainly has led to some of the mistrust uh, across this country specifically. But then the third might be the most important, and that has been the intentional polarization by news media companies to engage and even enrage uh, their readers or viewers. And when you think about that, you think about those media companies that have thrived at the you know, center to far right or center to far left, and, and to me, it's, it's, it's created this opening in the middle and this importance, and quite frankly, I believe necessity for centricity uh, to the middle of news coverage. And, and that's ultimately what led me to Newsweek, Matt. Uh, I got to know the CEO, Dev, about a year ago. We've talked a lot about this. Can there be one platform, one, one media brand that covets different viewpoints, that facilitates a debate and a discussion? And Newsweek is that iconic brand that, that is thriving in that middle ground right now. 
And, you know, Deb and I have talked a lot about how we can bring that to life even further as we enter 2023. So uh, such a rich topical area. Uh, I always think that outlets like the BBC and, and I would say Sky as well sort of give you the news. American television, certainly, the landscapes change dramatically. And when you go back and you look at Adam McKay's film, Vice, and when you look at the pieces that were done on Roger Ailes, I think there were a couple of different ones uh, that sort of told the story of his rise from being fired at CNBC to, you know, getting a blank check for Murdoch and creating what I, I think has been a, a, a terrible uh, situation for what it's done to our country to polarize us. But Fox News, undeniable as a great business. And that's where you referred to media owners, much better business, just measured by the bottom line, uh, as uh, poor David Zaslav is finding out at uh, Warner Brothers Discovery than CNN. And when Ted Turner created it, that CNN was a very different CNN. You know, going back to the days of Bernard Shaw and coverage of the war in the Gulf, you know, back in 92, I see you smiling, you remember it also. So uh, I think we kind of know how we got where we are. The question now is, what do we do? And that seems to be a question that Newsweek has staked out a pretty, what to me is a very solid piece of territory to build on. You know, over the last two and a half years, leading into COVID and then over the, uh, the two years of COVID and where we are today, one of the narratives that I've heard often uh, with both professional and just personal hats on is uh, people sharing that they're consuming news intentionally on Fox News, but then they want to flip over to CNN to see what the other side or vice versa. Is, is experiencing and seeing. And just that user habit, there's a product solution for that. There's a brand solution for that of being able to arm a user, a viewer, a reader with the multifaceted perspectives on an issue. And they don't always have to be political or even policy oriented. These can be social issues. They can be cultural conversations. Um, just honing in on the importance of the discussion and the debate is really important. One of the partnerships Newsweek is in the process of building right now actually is with the, an, an association called the Urban Debate League. When you think about philosophically the skill of debate, it's often a skill that's been reserved for students who have come from a more affluent background. And we got fascinated with this Urban Debate League because we could be critically important uh, to this country to help students who don't come from an affluent background to be inculcated with, to be exposed to, to have the opportunity to learn the skills of debate. And it's so core to our mission. Um, and I'm so excited by the potential of this partnership to think about how we tell these stories of these students who are often in urban uh, parts of the country, going through the lessons, going through actual debates, uh, building those skill sets is just very inspiring. It's just one example of how we're bringing our mission to life and, and how we're um, gonna be telling the stories of the importance of having civil discourse 
in, in discussions in this country as we head into 2023. Yeah, which is absolutely uh, so critical for the future of all of us. And and by the way, you know, I, I, I'm I'm sort of in the middle politically. I, I think we're a better, better country with a strong Republican Party. I just am sort of against the Marjorie Taylor, you know, saying if we had better weapons, we would have won on January 6th, which I think I think she just said that. Um, which is hard to believe that someone would say that out loud, but but I think yeah, she this did. isn't. Here's a hypothesis. This is not scientific, but if you take America, which I believe now is somewhere around 330 million population, I could be off, but right, right, and then there's a certain percentage who are going to be children who are not yet consuming news and information on the internet yet, like my twin 11 year old. So let's let's say there's an addressable market of 260 million uh, citizens of the United States. Um, who holds some form of a belief uh, from a political standpoint. And let's say 8%, 5 to 10% are at the far right, 5 to 10% of the far left. That leaves a lot of people who are somewhere in the middle and who are smart and want to be educated and, and want to be thoughtful and understand that there are people who disagree with them, whatever that viewpoint might be. Having a place that starts to foster that discussion, I think, is going to be critical. And by the way, there's room for more than one media company in the middle, as there's been more than room for one on the right or on the left. Right. And, and across genres. All right. We're going to come back to how this all works as a business, putting on your commercial and growth uh, hat. But let's pick on something else that you said and, and run with it a bit. You talked about the news feed. And part of the quagmire that we're now in, or a big causal link, is the amplification of the, that minority percentage. The louder, crazy voice is the one that gets amplified. And a lot of it is because people are reading stuff that they don't really know where it's from. Can you talk about that? Because you have real perspective there, not only with your Newsweek hat on, but with your Gannett hat and your Washington Post hat. Yeah. Gosh, where, where do you even start on that, Matt? You know, I had a thought recently, and I wonder when the last time Mark Zuckerberg actually used his news feed and posted into it was. And, and it's just the contrast of Elon, who is constantly posting into the Twitter feed, and we're all getting to see you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly in real time of how he's thinking about different things. I wonder if Mark, when the last time Mark was that avid of a user of his own newsfeed, I'm just curious. But the, the, the notion of the algorithm and how it's treating different pieces of content and how it treats an entity and does it discern whether that entity, a local news media company, a national brand, um, some of it's edited and fact checked. Some of it may not be edited and fact checked. Some of it is opinion. Some of it is objective or striving to be objective. And it really does all depend on how they're putting the finger on the weight of the scale of that algorithm. And I think from my experience, Facebook has gone through different trials and tribulations, different sets of priorities. I loved when they were uh, when when the Facebook algorithm was favoring local news. I'm a huge advocate for the importance of local news, of striving hard to innovate the business model to figure local news out. I celebrate 
and gosh, would give a hug, Matt, to those entrepreneurs, innovators out there who are driving at local news and, and solving its problems. I think Axios is doing some really interesting things there. They're trying. They're going about it differently. It's a hard, worthwhile battle. Um, I mean, it's critical. Uh, I'm, I, again, I'm just very passionate about it. And I think Facebook was favoring local news treatment uh, in their algorithm. And I don't know where they are with that, but I hope that they, they continue to think seriously. They can think critically about its importance uh, because those local journalists out across our country and across the world, those are the, those are the people who have committed their lives to reporting on local school board decisions, sporting scores, local politics, and what's going on in the mayor's office and, and, you know, holding them accountable is a strong phrase because they do a lot more than that, but they do do that local journalists. So um, it just, it's, it's so important to our democracy that, that these, these feeds, um, whether it's Apple news now, which I think is going about it in a different way. And I, and I think from a publisher standpoint, really like what they're doing there, but that, that um, there is a decisioning that's made algorithmically between a premium content creator, Matt, and you and I, and hopefully the audience listening knows what we mean by that. By that, we mean edited. By that, we mean fact check. By that, we mean companies investing in technology and, and in the real journalism um, versus the content that lacks that rigor. And because as we sit here today, I do believe it's what's caused some of the mistrust issues that we're experiencing globally as well as in this country with media. Yeah, and we have such a U.S.-centric view of everything, but you, Newsweek, are certainly part of a global landscape. And I think the way we've handled a lot of this stuff has really hurt the image of the United States uh, globally. And I travel quite a bit. You know, you and I were, you know, both comically surprised, I think, or ironically, I don't know what the right word is, Kevin, but surprised that Advertising Week is around and all over the world. And I'm as surprised as anyone 20 years later. But when you travel, when I'm in places like Johannesburg, I mean that as a conversation, South Africa, their democracy may be more stable than ours right now. And for a country that was living under apartheid into the 1990s, you know, that's a, a hell of a thing to even contemplate, let alone say or think. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think one of the reasons that you've seen the pendulum for iconic brands on the Internet swinging back in the favor of the iconic brand is because of the inherent trust that an iconic brand brings in the U.S. and outside of the U.S., the Newsweek brand is so resonant in Asia. The Newsweek brand, I'm heading to the Middle East actually tomorrow, is so resonant in the Middle East. And, you know, there, there's something to that. And I think what you've seen um, over the last five years is legacy, quote unquote, media companies were, were somewhat left to their legacy devices from a perception standpoint from, from members of the advertising marketplace and, and even uh, professionals who gravitated towards the platforms. Well, we're now starting to see 
that pendulum swing back. Where legacy brands who have committed to the art of journalism and invested into it significantly, who have taken those big strides of transformation and the growth mindset to build muscle that takes us off of a print product or a broadcast asset and more into a reaching audiences, utilizing the gifts of the internet on your sites and apps and, and including across social. Um, th those, are, those are important transformational elements to legacy brands, but legacy brands have the iconic nature of the trust. And that is really hard to build. And I think that is a primary driver of what we've seen in um, this renaissance of iconic brands on the internet. And not something that you can acquire. Either you have trust or trust is part of your brand DNA or it isn't. Yes. So let's shift gears just slightly. And I want to, I'm curious what your take on these two things is going to be at Newsweek. But twice in your career, you were ahead of the curve, once at Gannett and once at the Washington Post with the work that you did to get a dedicated branded content studios off the ground. You did it at Gannett with the Get Creative Branded Content Studio, and you did it again at the Washington Post with their brand studio. Talk about the evolutions of those, and you've really ridden that wave of, you know, pre-digital, you know, to the early days, to the rise in dominance. So I'd love your perspective and you know, remembrances of those two creative brand studios and what, if any of that is relevant for you, you know, looking ahead at Newsweek. Yeah. And actually the first one was at Forbes and, and the, it was a very interesting moment in time at Forbes coming out of the very challenging economic conditions of 2008 into 2009. And Forbes had recently at that time, now Forbes had um, sold part of the company to an incredible private equity firm called Elevation and Partners. And so you had all these, all this created a backdrop. Tough economy, we were in digital transformation, but the magazine was still an important part of the business. And as a leadership team, we had to work collaboratively to figure out how could we start to drive the reinvention of the future of Forbes. And it was about that time that uh, Tim Forbes, who, who was the Forbes family member who really uh, helped us drive the business. He was very involved with that and, and just uh, a great thought partner and somebody I think highly up to this day. And uh, we acquired Louis Dvorkin's True Slant. And to be honest, Matt, at that moment in time, and that was probably 08, it might've been at the beginning of 09 in there, I was trying to get my head around True Slant and their business model. And that time at Forbes, it was just an incredible team of people, Meredith Levian, Mark Howard. I could keep going for a long time and Lewis and, and many, many other very talented, very smart people. And we were thinking about, okay, we had built a CMO practice, meaning we were having twice a week lunches with CMOs throughout 08, 09, and into 10. 
and, uh, and specifically Steve Forbes and I or Tim Forbes and I. And what we kept hearing from chief marketing officers was we are in the business of creating content. Like, that's interesting. We keep hearing this from marketers. And some days that seems obvious, but other days it's like, well, that's what we do. <laughs> We're content creators. How do we best adjust for this? And, and then uh, also uh, along those lines, we realized that there was a content continuum being formed by social. So it was no longer a journalist telling her story to reach a reader in a monologue or a one-way street. There was a dialogue or conversation happening on the web, and we felt brands could enter into that conversation. So the, these led to what ultimately became an early uh, or you know, one of the earliest versions of branded content that we called ad voice. And at that time, we were led, the product launch was allowing brands to put hands on keyboard in our content management system to tell a story. And there were a lot of aha moments that came along that way. We, I'll never forget a meeting that we had with uh, General Motors and their agency. And General Motors CEO at that time was an outside the automotive industry CEO named Ed Whitaker, who if memory serves had come from AT&T and he was flying to Detroit um, from, from San Antonio. And there was a, if my memory is correct on this, this is going back a number of years, but there was um, a challenge being issued to the Cadillac design and engineering teams to essentially come up with a car that was better performing than the M series BMW, but to do it at a lower price point. And I'll never forget a meeting where with their creative agency and the media agency and uh, the marketing team. And this question came up, do, have you captured the designers and engineers aha moments and failures and how they pick themselves up? We have, we actually have. And I can just, I will never forget feeling it being in that room, all of my colleagues on the Forbes side were like, this is it. This is incredible branded content. Whether someone's in market to buy a car or not, almost doesn't matter. These are the stories of failures, of aha moments, of excitement, of invigoration, that the, the, the human drama that we felt would just be such captivating content slash branded content. And so that was really the launch of, um, you know, what's become a more pervasive and more commonplace ad product, if you will, or ad solution across the industry. And, you know, we knew there was going to be a lot as, as we were starting to get out into market and we were starting to share this vision and our excitement around it with clients, it became apparent to us rapidly that this was going to be an expansive part of the industry. And so that's, that was the early days. I, I love that. And I love that you started at Forbes and you had a, a tremendous run there about a dozen years, as I recall, I think that's where we, where we first met. Talk about uh, just more generally that company was a magical place. And I think our very first year in 2004, we did an, did an event uh, in the Forbes, what was it twelfth or thirteenth and fifth? Oh yeah, oh yeah, sixty fifth Avenue. And yeah. the and the Fabergé eggs were all there at the time. But talk about um, was Malcolm still alive then? 
I never met Malcolm. I believe I started at Forbes in 1999 as a salesperson in New York City. And I believe Malcolm, Malcolm, I, I'll just put it this might way. Might have been alive. Yeah. But, but, Steve, been, but Steve, Steve was running the business. Oh, though. yeah. Yeah. Steve yeah, and yeah. I worked together very closely. Yeah. So talk about the Forbes family. They're such an interesting place. And that company back when you started, you know, was a huge powerhouse. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'll never forget getting the call. I was a salesperson at Scientific American magazine. And my dream was to go, I would say generally to what was called, referred to then as the business magazine category. I loved Fortune, I loved Business Week, and I certainly loved Forbes. And I feel like I willed that call to happen, Matt. <laughs> and it came. And it came and um, I went to meet with the New York advertising director at the Peacock Lounge at the Waldorf, as one did uh, in those days for breakfast at 7.30 in the morning, there with bells on. And I just knew from that very moment that this was going to be a magical place and the opportunity for me. And so my career there started as New York um, salesperson. I think I was one of the younger salespeople there. I'll never forget, I was partnered with the most senior, uh, most tenured of our sales uh, people in New York uh, with a, a, an assistant that we both shared. And the, my first day at work, he came in and said, hey, young man, you teach me how to do this email. I'll teach you the ropes. <laughs> I said, deal. <laughs> that is a good deal. 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 And so I, I uh, progressed to becoming a New York ad director and then I think it was 2002, moved out to San Francisco to look after the West Coast business at Forbes. And that was, that was um, a fantastic, it was a nerve wracking experience for me. I did not, I had never owned a car and you had the whole Southern California automotive sector. I wasn't as well versed in high tech, which of course was Silicon Valley thriving at that time. And so I knew I had to dig in and I had to learn. And I had to just stay very patient and focused and um, to accumulate the knowledge necessary to be successful in that role, for sure. So you, you mentioned a, a, an almost manifest destiny to work in the field that you ended up in, in, in business news and business journalism and some of the great iconic titles. But you were a, a major uh, literature, British and, and, and sort of a, a, an Anglophile uh, as a specialty, where did that passion come from? So funny, Matt. Well, I believe, so I went to the University of Florida as a College of Liberal Arts and Sciences graduate, English literature, exactly. And I happen to be involved with the university, so I'm very passionate about this. I'm really glad you asked. You could argue that the skills that one garners reading, thinking and writing and communicating might be some of the most translatable into the general profession of media, advertising and sales. And communication skills, uh, external with potential clients and partners, but also internal, I would hone in as the most important uh, set of skills at least in my industry and certainly proven out in my career path. So I was very fortunate that uh, I did not accelerate in the mathematics 
um, in this regard. I gave it my best. I'll, I'll never forget um, engineering calculus and my, my second semester of my freshman year. I realized pretty quickly that probably wasn't going to be my domain expertise. If you get my drift, Matt. I do. I do. Yeah. But I'm, my wife and I currently are involved with the University of Florida and a program out of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences called Beyond 120. 120 are the number of credit hours a student takes in order to graduate. And it is our passion to help students graduating with a liberal arts and science degree to find internships, to ability to have the opportunity to travel to an internship to really help set them up with the skills necessary to be successful once they leave the college. We're very passionate about that. Great stuff. All right. I'm, I'm glad we went down that uh, Gator Road also. So you had one gig, Kevin, where we also uh, dealt with each other at Yahoo, which has a very different orientation. The company is a much younger company. It's an engineer led or founded company versus these iconic figures who have been, you know, towered over popular culture in the magazine world, the newspaper world, certainly Al Newharth at Gannett and uh, the legendary and legacy of family uh, at the Washington Post in the pre-Bezos era. But talk about that experience and how it varied or was different in ways that might not be obvious. Um, yeah. Yep. Yep. So I just, it, it's worth putting a, a moment of context into that. I had joined the Washington Post as, as chief revenue officer and the journey to the Washington Post was quite an incredible one. And about, I don't know if memory serves here, Matt, two or three months into uh, my tenure at the Washington Post, we learned that Jeff Bezos was acquiring the Washington Post. It was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I wrote a little bit about that at Newsweek a couple weeks ago. And so with that as the backdrop, we had Jeff coming in. Jeff was an amazing uh, partner. I feel like he was such a fan of the Washington Post newsroom. And when I'm, I've been asked, by the way, as you might imagine, many times, why do, why do we think that Jeff bought the Washington Post? And while nobody knows the answer to that, I can tell you firsthand, he loved that newsroom. He just did. He, 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 he really, I could see his passion for the stories that they told, their esprit de corps, um, how they went about covering stories was just very important to him. And so that was what I saw. And it was, I was, I was then um, honored to be recruited to go lead advertising sales at Yahoo. And that was a journey to get there. Um, just trying to understand that business better. It was an honor. Of course, it was a large business to look after. Um, it was a company that uh, Marissa had really been turning around, building momentum. She's an incredible, I've, I've had the opportunity, Matt, to work for some just incredible um, industry and business uh, leaders, some of the most successful um, business leaders there are. And I would certainly put Marissa in, in that category. Um, she's just so smart. And yet Yahoo faced a lot of headwinds too. Um, obviously Facebook was roaring to life at that time. Google was dominant, um, Marissa having come from Google. And a lot of the business was search. 
which is an area of expertise I had not been exposed to nor developed yet. And so it, and, and having that pr a real product centricity to it, you hear a lot about media companies uh, over the last 10 years moving to a more product led culture and a more product and innovation led mindset. But when you go to an actual technology company like a Yahoo, it's truly that there, it is truly a company led by product genius and engineers. And so that was a wonderful uh, experience for me to really be able to immerse myself in that. I had gotten a great taste of a product and engineering led culture with Shailesh Prakash, who, who led all of uh, engineering product and technology at the Washington Post, brilliant, brilliant partner. And then of course the tailwind of Jeff Bezos uh, acquiring the Post too. But it was at Yahoo that there was a full immersion on that. What I missed at Yahoo was the journalism and the importance of how much that meant to me. I didn't realize how much that meant to me. Um, just a pr the premium iconic nature of a media company and how much time I have committed in my career to spending reading journalism and interacting with journalists and just loving, adoring, admiring that profession was, was the piece that uh, I was missing there. Well, iconic brands, each and every one. I mean, we're talking Forbes, you know, the Gannett family, uh, uh, the Washington Post, and now Newsweek. Uh, it, it all adds up. Uh, it really does. So the question that I started to ask before and, and semi-bungled, going back to your leadership in not only two, but three creative brand content studios, that was really part of a broader play that you led to, I hate to use the word, but I, I can't think of a better one, contemporize what was happening and take advantage of opportunities in the digital arena. Talk about how you're figuring this out in today's economy where we're not, we don't have the newsstand sales. The whole business has changed so dramatically. Print once Main Street now, you know, maybe still an entree of sorts, but I'm going to guess almost a side dish in many ways for the business overall. Talk about where we are today with Newsweek and how you're building on all that body of work and experience to take Newsweek forward. Yeah. Certainly, as, as you think about the role of the media company and the audience the media company wins in, in this last 10 years of digital transformation, a, a media company at, at parts of that journey has really had to fight hard to show it could innovate, to show it could define and differentiate its value proposition versus ad tech the gold rush to programmatic, audience-based buying becoming much more pervasive. What was the role of the media brand in the midst of all of this? Certainly for advertisers as we're moving into this digital environment. In my career, I've worked with great teams. We've tested guaranteeing brand lift with digital advertising investment. We've really worked hard to try to be leading the industry in ad innovations 
And so branded content was really, as you think back, a natural reaction to all the money that was shifting to audience-based buying and programmatic to show, wait a minute, as a media brand, we can actually work specifically with Name Your Brand, a financial services company, as an operating agency, if you will, to help them reach our readers specifically, relevantly, in a way that can create not only engagement, but can lead to a transaction. And that, that has continued forward where media brands are having to operate the business smartly. And as we know, building out an agency or studio capabilities, there, there's a cost associated with that. So I think you have to smartly marry your desire for ad innovation, for differentiation with your ability to scale the business. So I think blending how you're utilizing first party data, how you're utilizing partners, where you're using your own your own capabilities to define and differentiate for brands is mission critical, how you balance your portfolio. And at Newsweek, um, we have a very exciting opportunity to be reframing our story to the marketplace, which, which we're uh, deep at work at now. We have a real opportunity to innovate from an ad product perspective, and, and we're building that right now. And um, from a branded content perspective, we're very excited about this middle ground, this radical centricity that we're bringing to the media equation and how we can help empower brands to reach our super valuable, important readers in this environment is just very exciting. And so we're building that out uh, now and we'll be in market as, as you, so out, Matt, I, I have an understanding of how to build out a branded content studio, how to make it operate and how to make it successful for the partners that we work with. And so we're really creating Newsweek into a destination for commercial talent. We're bringing on board um, very successful, very highly energized, uh, innovative thinkers into our commercial team right now, one after another. Just got off the phone uh, with a very talented person in Los Angeles before our, our, our call today. So it's it's all leading. We're, we're, we're moving, I think by advertising week, 2023, we're, we're going to be a main stage player with you. We'll, 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 we'll be ready for you. So talk about the evolution of the business model. You've had, you know, chief revenue, similar posts at a number of these, you know, bellwether brands. I would think the business plan, if you will, we'll use old uh, language for 2023 is radically different from what it would have been five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Yeah, it's again, it's interesting how different, different industry fads take lead narrative in business models. As you know, we've recently over the last three years has been the height of the subscription model. And for a lot of reasons, when you think about a company that doesn't really have a subscription model, and they're solely advertising led. There was a company that went public uh, via SPAC late last year. They had to release their earnings for the first time. While they have certainly many businesses, if you're 100 million uniques doing 400 million of primarily 
brand partnership or advertising revenue, you're, you're deriving $4 per unique per year, okay? In a subscription model, if you compel a user into a financial relationship of a subscription, well, you're winning six, eight, 10, $12 a month from that subscriber and they're highly engaged. So you're able to create even more advertising monetization with that subscriber too. So the subscription model makes a lot of sense as you back out and think about it. Now, we also know that users across this country and the world are now subscribed to way too many products. And as we've gone through inflationary pressures and potential recession, you're starting to see users actually really drill into their credit card statements to understand what they're subscribing to and to cut down on their subscription. So I think it's not a one size fits all business model. You, you have to have, and by the way, in the midst of all this, the advertising sector, the advertising business for media companies was not as in vogue as was the subscription business. And it's often seen with inside a publisher of these, these two things, subscription priority, advertising priority, having tension or conflict uh, with each other. And the fortunate situation we have at Newsweek is, is it's all part of the living, breathing ecosystem of your digital corpus. User experience, advertiser experience, great content that compels a reader into subscription, a smart advertising business uh, that leads to renewals of advertising campaigns and customers for our advertisers. And so building that all out thoughtfully is important. Having an events business that you're serious about and giving consideration to. Are you, are you thinking about your podcast business separately than you're thinking about your opportunity to create docu-series with production companies to take to streaming platforms? And then can you do all of these things or should you take the decision to not do things? I think not doing things is almost as important part of your business model as what you're doing so that you can do the things you're choosing to prioritize better because you're doing fewer things smartly. A lot of publishers get caught up in what their competition is doing or what their peers are doing and, and who's sharing what on social media. And I think it's imperative for publishers to be making good operational decisions on the bets they wanna take and what they don't wanna take because you can't do everything. You just can't. And, and it sounds like you've got a real entrepreneurial mandate from leadership. Everything you're saying doesn't sound like it comes from a so-called legacy media company. Right. And it can't. And it can't. Because, you know, the future is only going to continue to be more of one that is on a device and will continue to be less of whatever the legacy platform that the iconic brand brings. A lot of the profit has always been associated with that legacy product though. And so figuring out how to best operate in the future is so important. And, and running an operationally sound growth-oriented digital business means you have to take hard decisions. You have to really force yourself to figure out what it is you're going to invest in and drive the execution of that versus what you're going to decide not to do. I can remember a small example of this, Matt, and 
I understood why publishers were, were lining up to test at the time Snapchat Discover and to invest into Snapchat Discover without there being a clear cut business model for it. It's, it's using muscles that you haven't really used as uh, product and content companies. It seems like it's a way for you to reach younger audiences and to be relevant to them. But it's not like you can shift and lift. This is very bespoke and very, well, to a degree, it's going to require investment and it's going to take time and effort and it may not work. And I think for most publishers, they... Publishers learn in that journey, but was it profitable? And I think it's that, how can you test and learn and yet also run the profitable business? That's always the balance that the leadership team has to take, yeah. right? Yeah, it's really such an interesting area. And, and just one more, because uh, again, just s such a rich tapestry we're talking about here and weaving together. You mentioned the Apple's approach as a friendlier approach to publishers. Can you drill in there a little bit, Kevin? And is the ultimate challenge here for you getting people to pay to be one of the things that I'll say, you know what, I'm going to pay for that? Yes, for sure. You know, Newsweek has forever occupied this really interesting pulse point between the cultural and political zeitgeist. And that is such an important part of the iconic history of the Newsweek brand. And for us, reinventing that magic um, and, and how we're captivating at that intersection uh, of politics and culture for 2023 and beyond is such an exciting part of what we're doing, along with the mission of being at the center. But being, uh, I read that in Newsweek, you, you just... Uh, captured that, Matt, is exactly what we're striving to build. We want to be a daily habit for for readers and for users. We want to have that phrase be the thing. Yeah, I read that in Newsweek. We feel like if we're if we're striving to be that compelling, then we're going to be building essentially a subscription business to follow it. For 2023, we've got a pretty clear priority of being a, a business led by brand partnership growth. You know, it's interesting. Newsweek is also this iconic American brand that is 100% minority owned, which is, which is interesting. Our leadership team views the challenges and opportunities a bit differently than any of the leadership team I've worked on. I love that. I think the diverse viewpoints, the way we look at things from a multifaceted perspective is very emblematic of our actual mission. So it's like we live our mission as, as we're working together as a team to build the future. It's great, great story. Well, Kevin, this was a great conversation. I can't thank you enough for finding the time for us to catch up. And uh, it's exciting what's going on over there. And, and I hope you win. I, I think the Radical Center is a great, uh, I love that notion. I love that expression. I may use that. Uh, I will credit, credit you, of course, uh, and, and Newsweek. Uh, but it, it w will be better off if you're successful. And you can't say that about everybody you talk to. All right, man. Thanks.
Not every company can produce original video ads in half the time and at a fraction of the cost of traditional commercials, but not every company is QuickFrame by Mountain. Their solution hacks the video production process, funneling all the benefits of a massive creator marketplace into a hand-selected network of video creators who work alongside customer success teams to bring your brand's vision to life. Producing high-performing video ads at scale isn't expensive and time-consuming anymore. Or at least it isn't with QuickFrame. Visit QuickFrame.com to learn more.